If you've got a Bible, again, 1 Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to be. And this morning we're starting a new mini-series of messages on the role and qualifications of elders who serve in the life of the local church. And so this morning we take a look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. That'll be on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along there if you don't have a copy in front of you. Peter picks up in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I think we all could agree that leadership impacts every area of life, doesn't it? It impacts everything from nation states down to families in every organization or institution that finds itself somewhere there in between. Uh, In fact, including uh, the local church. Including the local church, it impacts. In fact, you might say that much of what takes place in any given local church oftentimes rises and falls on leadership, the courageous leadership, convictional leadership, uh, righteous leadership, humble leadership. What rises and falls, local churches tend to rise and fall on the leadership in the life of that particular congregation. And so it's important that we as a local church would affirm the right kinds of leaders within our midst. And so as we move toward the nomination and installation of elders, uh, many of you know Steve Welch, who led us in prayer this morning, Stanley John. They've served now for the last two and a half years. Their first three-year term is coming up at the end of this year. Uh, Should they want to continue to serve in that capacity, and should you want them to continue to serve in that capacity, uh, then we will reaffirm them in January, but also want to bring another elder or two into that mix with them. Uh, We said this at the table last Sunday, so that there's a sense of rotation in leadership. Not, there's some overlapping in folks who are serving alongside of each other as elders in the life of a local church here at Redeemer. And so as we move towards the nomination of those individuals who would serve us as elders, I wanted to bring us back to the Scriptures and remind us of the kinds of leaders that we are looking for as we would bring people to be nominated in that particular office in the local church. So we believe there's two offices of leadership in the local church. There are elders and there are deacons. That's what the Bible says. The New Testament teaches that there are those who shepherd and teach and guide and lead. And then there's those who are serve and they, uh, they administrate and they organize uh, and they carry out and implement ministry. So there's elders and there are deacons. And we talked about deacons last year around this time. So if you go back in the archives of the sermons, you can find that there this year fall, we're going to look at elders for three weeks as we consider the kinds of folks we're looking to install to lead in the local church. So uh, over the next three weeks, I hope to unpack this, this kind of working definition in its full in fullness, but this morning we're not going to get to all of these aspects, but we're going to get to some of them. So elders, what is an elder? Elders are spiritually qualified men who are called by God and affirmed by the church to work together to lead, feed, and care for the local church. And so as we read Scripture here at Redeemer, this is what we see standing out for us with regards to the role of an elder, who an elder is in the life of a local church. 
And so this morning, looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to highlight several things for us about the work of elders. Before we ever get to their qualifications uh, that we'll look at the next two weeks in 1 Timothy and Titus, we want to see the kind of work that elders have set before them in the local church. What is it that an elder does? Right? How, and how do they go about doing it? That's what we want to look at this morning. And so what is it that an elder does? An elder shepherds. An elder is a shepherd. Elders are shepherds. We can say it that way. They are shepherds. Now listen, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 2, he exhorts or he commands the elders of the churches that he's writing to. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Right, he takes the noun and he turns it into a verb. Right? We think of a shepherd, we think of somebody with a long robe and a staff who's walking out in the field among sheep. And he takes that noun and he says, it's a verb. There's an action that goes with that. You are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. But that command that Peter gives, listen, it's telling to the kinds of work that Peter envisions a, a, an elder doing. That the New Testament envisions an elder doing. Now, there are some prominent pastors in large churches who would say, listen, the language of shepherd is kind of time-bound to that day and that age. It doesn't really describe what pastors or elders or overseers do any longer. And so we can just get rid of that language. We need people who are cultural architects and visionary strategists, right? But listen, I, I would stand before you this morning and say this. Before the church ever needs anybody who's an executive, they need elders. Before they need strategists, they need shepherds. Okay, before they need visionaries, they need folks who, have, who are virtuous with the kinds of qualities and character that God requires of folks who would give leadership to His people. All right? And so we retain that language of shepherd because we believe it tells us something about what God envisions and intends for these folks to do. And it elicits several images. If you think of it, think of it this way, an elder does at least these three things that the work of a shepherd, he does, first of all, he protects and he keeps, he guards the local church. Part of the elder's work is to guard and keep Jesus' church from being enticed away to other lovers, from being influenced by winds and waves of false teaching. So there's a keeping, a guarding, a protecting ministry that elders have in a local church. So they've got to have enough doctrinal chops, right, in order to identify false teaching, call it out, call it what it is, and guide the church in true teaching. In fact, Paul says this in Acts chapter 20. He gives us, a, 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 for instance, in Acts chapter 20, in verses 28 to 30, listen to what he says. He calls the Ephesian elders together before he goes on to Jerusalem, and he gives them a charge. He says in Acts 20, 28 to 30, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul warns the Ephesian elders, he says, listen, there be fe there's going to be people from the outside and people from the inside who are going to distort, who are going to warp, who are going to twist truth in such a way that it would lead folks 
stray to follow after them rather than the teaching that's been handed down from Jesus to the apostles and to pastors, overseers, elders in the life of local churches from generation to generation to generation. And what Paul warns the Ephesian church about in his day is no less of a warning in ours. So a part of the life or part of the role of an elder as a shepherd is to protect, it's to guard the local church. Second of all, it's to feed and teach the local church. To feed and teach the local church. A part of their work is to teach and preach in such a way that it nourishes, that it raises a church, so to speak. Right? If you go to John chapter 21, and verses 15 to 17, Jesus, after His resurrection, before His ascension, He's on a beach. Right? He's my wife's kind of Jesus, right? On a beach. <laughs> and He's there with His disciples. And he's engaging them in discussion, and one in particular, Simon Peter, who had denied him on three occasions on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion. And as they finished breakfast in John 21, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? At this point, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, when Jesus restores Peter from his betrayal and sets Peter in a position of leadership among the other apostles, what does he charge him to do? To feed the lambs, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. It's a recurring theme over and over and over again. Jesus, as the chief shepherd, sets Peter as an under-shepherd and says, feed, 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 nourish them. Raise them, teach them, instruct them, guide them. Martin Luther, I love the way he says it. He says that elders essentially are Christ's servants and their business is to guard Christ's sheep and to feed them. Therefore, to tend them is nothing else than to preach the gospel by which their souls are nourished, made fat and fruitful, since the sheep thrive upon the gospel and the word of God. So part of the elder's job is to be able to open this book and to be able to take a text and exposit it in such a way that its meaning becomes clear and its application becomes real in the lives of its hearers. To teach and instruct in such a way that it raises a church. Third, third, the role of an elder is to lead in the life of a local church as well. See, a part of the elder's work is to lead the church toward the expression of Jesus' mission in its local context. To give leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says to Timothy, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, for Paul to single out elders, especially who labor in the work of preaching and teaching, means that there must be elders as well whose primary expression of their gifts is not preaching and teaching. That there are some who are giving leadership in the life of the local church in other ways. 
In other ways, some who are perhaps more priestly in their orientation, so they're counseling and caring for people in a more personalized type setting. There are those who may be more kingly in their orientation, so they think about systems and processes and structures, about how to organize the work of the ministry and see it executed in ways that are uh, sustainable as a church grows. Right? So they, they might have more of a priestly gift or more of a kingly gift and less of a prophetic gift. But all of them are gifted some capacity to help lead the congregation, to help lead the church in the fulfillment of its mission that God has given her in its local context. So they lead, they feed, and they protect, and they care, and they tend. That's the work of a shepherd in the life of a local church. Now, another thing about the New Testament is the New Testament never envisions any one man doing this alone. Because eldering is a team sport. Okay? Eldering is not like golf. Okay? Got at least one golfer in the room this morning, right? But golf, you might have a few golfers. You might have a coach, right? Who's there with you at the at the driving range or on the putt practice green, right? Working with you on your swing. You don't want to see my swing this morning. It's not a very pretty sight. Although I did win closest to the pin a few years ago in our little golf tournament. I say that with all humility. However, listen, golf is an individual sport. You're not relying on anyone else around you. You're simply relying upon your own abilities to execute in the, in, in the hour of need. But listen, football is a much different sport. And college football kicked off yesterday, and I was just more than a little bit stoked, okay? So I watched a little bit of college football yesterday. But you see, right, if the offensive line doesn't do its job, then the quarterback can't do his job. If the offensive line doesn't do its job, then the running back can't, if they don't open up holes, then the running back can't do its job, okay? If the defensive line doesn't do its job, then the linebackers can't get in and make plays over the middle. They can't get in and sack the quarterback. Like, there's just, everybody's relying on the other person to do their job. And listen, that is the same thing that is true when it comes to leadership in the life of a local church. Eldering is a team sport. It's much more like football than it is like golf. Except you're not plowing over people, okay? It's a team sport. See, the New Testament never envisions any one person doing this work alone. In fact, Peter, in verse 1, when he refers to the elders, it's plural. And all throughout the New Testament, when you see that word elder show up, it almost never shows up in the singular, almost exclusively shows up as plural. Elders. Let me give you a few examples. In Philippians 1.1, when Paul greets the church at Philippi, he says, to all the saints with the overseers, or elders, in this interchangeable language, Plural, and the deacons. In Acts 11.30, we see that when the church in Antioch took up a collection for the church in Judea and sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, they sent it to the elders. Plural. In Acts 14.23-24, we see Paul and Barnabas traveling to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and appointing elders, plural, in all the churches. In Acts 15.2, Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to discuss a dispute over circumcision being necessary for salvation and inclusion as a part of God's people. And they discuss it with the apostles and the elders, plural. 
Acts 15.22, the apostles and the elders choose men to go back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. In Acts 20, when Paul assembles the Ephesians, elders, plural, right? he talks to them and gives them the charge. In James 5.14, when James gives instructions to those reading his letters about when you're sick, what do you do? You call upon who? The elders, plural, of the church to come and pray and anoint you with oil. I, I've got more. You <laughs> but I'll stop there. I think you get the picture, right? When the word elder shows up in the, in the New Testament, it shows up in the plural over and over and over and over again because no one man was designed to shoulder this work by themselves. It's a team sport. And a part of what that means here at Redeemer is this. Listen, the org chart at Redeemer, okay? You think about it that way. Right, the org chart does not have me at the top and then the elders under me and then the deacons under them, and then the congregation under them. That's not how it works, right? The org chart, if you, if you, see, if you were to take a look at it, is flat across the board with the elders supporting the work of the ministry and the congregation being underneath. It's, a top, it's not a top-down structure like a pyramid where the elders are up here and the congregation is down here. It's the elders are down here supporting the work of the ministry, the, the congregation to instruct them and equip them for the works that God's called them to. And so they're engaged. But listen, listen, I am, there's, there's not, I'm not the lead elder and they're like, I'm not the varsity elder and they're like JV elders. That's not how it works. Okay? That we are elders, plural. What that means is whenever it comes time for us as elders to make decisions about direction, that I have one vote. At, right now, out of three. I don't have two votes. I don't get a veto. Right? I don't. I can't sign executive orders to push my agenda through. That's not how it works. We could comment much more on that. But that's not how it works. Right? I, I, just one vote. In fact, when it comes to the elders in the life of this church, the only difference between myself and Steve and Stanley, listen, listen, you need to recognize and I hope they recognize and feel this, is that they will answer to the Lord insofar as how we have led this church to the same degree that I will. They're not going to stand behind me on the day of judgment. They're going to stand beside me on the day of judgment. And we will answer together. The only difference between me and them is this, is that this church graciously affords me a salary in order to put my hands to the work of eldering, shepherding full-time, 40 to 50 hours a week. That's the only difference. The only difference. It's a team sport. We do it together. That means if an elder shows up and visits you in the hospital, it's the same as me visiting you in the hospital. It means if an elder makes a phone call to you, it's the same as me making a phone call to you. That means if an elder disciples you, encourages you, challenges you, or rebukes you, it's the same as me engaging in that work. As shepherds in this particular flock. It's a team sport. But how do we do that shepherding? Paul gives us instruction here. The elders are to do this kind of shepherding work by, he says, exercising oversight 
by exercising oversight. See, this protecting and feeding and leading should be done, as one commentator says, with, he says, with attentive, compassionate care. That's what it means to exercise oversight. Right, the, the idea of exercising oversight is almost synonymous with demonstrating concern or care for the flock. Right, that I'm attentive to the needs of the people who are part of this congregation. That I feel compassionate. I'm moved within my soul for their hurts, for their longings, for their desires, for their dreams. That I care about those things that they care about. I'm concerned for them. And I'm attentive to them. And listen, it's not just about oversight of, of, of programs. And it's not just about oversight of budgets and facilities. But it's the oversight of people. People. So we're concerned about people. All kinds of people, by the way. People who are in all kinds of stages of life. I listed a few. It's concern for people who are teachable and those who think they already know everything. Or those who think they already know everything they need to know, so I don't need to know anything else. It's concern for the younger brothers amongst the congregation who are living in hard-hearted sinful rebellion and the elder brothers who are living in hard-hearted self-righteousness. It's concern for those who are giving generously and those who aren't giving at all. It's concern... For those with strong consciences, those who are tempted at every turn, and concern for those with weak consciences. It's concern for those who are well and able to serve and are present, and those who are sick and those who are homebound. It's concern for those whose hearts are hurting, those whose hearts are healing, and those whose hearts have yet to be shattered. And they're still living in kind of a relatively naive bubble, wondering why some people just can't get over some things. It's concern for those who are in the deepest valleys of their lives, those who are at the peak of the mountains, for those who just buried a child or those who just welcomed into their home by birth or adoption a new baby. It's for those who are on the threshold of the joys of marriage. The joys. And for those who just lost their spouse to an awful disease. It's concern for those who are present, those who are absent, those who appear to be maturing, those who appear to be stuck, those who are evidently in a position of waywardness and wandering, those who are engaged fully in the mission that Jesus has given His church and the vision He's given her leaders, and then those who have a tendency to bite, because sheep can bite sometimes. You know that? They can bite. Because they're disgruntled, or because they're unhealthy, or because they're hurting. It's concern for those who are living in harmony with one another and those who are living in the midst of disputes that need resolution and mediation. It's concern for all kinds of people who are in all kinds of situations. Just this last week, I made a series of phone calls to inactive members in the life of our church encouraging them to get re-engaged in the life of the body and spoke with a family in our community who's... And, and, the, and the wife, her body's being attacked by a disease called rheumatoid arthritis and causing all of her systems to begin to shut down. Right? So it's all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. Because eldering is people work. Shepherding is people work. The oversight is of people. 
Right? Not just about making decisions about what program we're going to start next fall, about what facility we're going to build, what are we going to budget for. It's about people who are part of Jesus' church. Part of what that means is this, is that for those elders or pastors or those who would aspire to that work, right, who think, if the people would just leave me alone, then I could focus on the work of the ministry, then they've missed the work of the ministry all together. <laughs> all together. And listen, this kind of shepherding is both corporate and personal. I think we need to recognize that. Elders have a responsibility to lead, feed, and protect the overall body through a very public ministry, but they also have a responsibility to attend and guide individual members of the body through private ministry to them. See, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, in telling a parable, He says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? In other words, Jesus says, listen, if there's one who is wandering, if there's one who is wayward, you don't just stand up in front of people and call out, come back, come back, come back. But you go seek out the one who is not present and you say, come back. Where are you? What's going on in your life? Listen, elders do have a public voice as they shape the church, as they shepherd the church through teaching, whether it be in the, from the pulpit or whether it be in a life group or whether it be uh, in, in a small group or a renew class setting, but they also have a private voice in the life of members to go after them, to encourage them, to equip them, disciple them, correct them, and draw them back into the fold. It requires both. Not either or. So, with that, those things in mind, I want to take the rest of the time that we have left this morning to encourage you about what you ought to look for and the kinds of men that you would nominate as elders based upon what Peter says here in the text. Because the way in which these men go about exercising that oversight is crucial. So first, uh, let me give them all to you, and then I'll come back and unpack them. They're gonna, it's gonna, it's really, it, it'll go a lot faster than what you think. But you ought to nominate men who are humble, personal, willing, eager, and exemplary. Those five things. First of all, nominate those who are humble. See, a good elder recognizes that he is still a sheep. <laughs> in fact, the mention in verse 4 of a chief shepherd means that, they, that elders are just under-shepherds in the life of the church. They're, in fact, the org chart is this. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Elders are under-shepherds in the life of the congregation. And so every good elder recognizes that he's still a sheep and he still needs shepherding. Right, there have been... T- I don't know if I have enough fingers to count the number of times over the course of the last five years with the elders in this congregation that I've had to confess my own selfishness, that I've had to confess my own sinfulness, that I've had to bring before them my errors, my mistakes, the times in which even they saved me from some of those errors and mistakes because I only have one vote. (laughs) Because I still need shepherding in my own life. There are people that I still look to for counsel and guidance Because I know I don't have it all together. I know that I don't have all the answers. 
See, there needs to be a sense of humility in the life of elders that leads them to recognize they're still sheep. We'll talk about more about that in weeks to come. But second of all, you need to nominate those not, who are not only humble, but those who are personal. Personal. Look at what Peter says in verse 1. He's exhorting the elders among them. And in verse 2, he delivers the exhortation of these elders by saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He doesn't say, shepherd the flock of, 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 whom you are above, but whom you are among. In other words, you're rubbing shoulders with them. In fact, that's the way that a shepherd in the ancient world were led sheep. He wasn't like a cowboy, all right? He was on his horse with his hat and his wranglers and his spurs. And he's in front of the cows or from behind the cows, driving them, cracking the whip, right? Move! Yeah! Right? But the shepherd was in the midst of the sheep, walking alongside of them so much so that good shepherds, they smell like sheep. You're like, I don't want to be a shepherd anymore. But they smell like sheep. They smell like the difficulties in the lives of people. They smell like the realities of life for those who are part of their congregation. Because they're among them. They're personal. Right? They're not like, uh, <laughs> somebody once said, a pastor is never out of their study in the morning and never in it during the afternoon. Now, you may say, well, you might choose to a lot your time differently than that. But the point of it is this, is that a good elder gives attention to the study of God's Word to be able to help shape and shepherd and counsel the people. But then, they don't just descend down from the ceiling in the church on Sunday morning and then open the Word and preach. And then there's an elevator that brings them back up and they disappear for the next six days. Because they're involved Monday through Saturday in the lives of people. Seeking them out. Having face time with them. They're personal. Third, nominate those who are willing. Who are willing. Look, Peter says this, that they're, not, that they're not serving this capacity under compulsion. In other words, no one's twisting their arm. It's not out of duty that they're serving in this capacity. But there's a delight for them. There's a willingness for them. There's a voluntary stepping forward saying, yes, I want to give myself to this work. As I think about all the other things that I could give my discretionary time to, I want to give it to this. And they're willing. Fourth, you nominate those who are eager to give. Peter says that they're not serving out of a motive of shameful gain. In other words, they don't want to take for themselves, but they want to give to others. Listen, some, of, some people think of paid elders or pastors as like spiritual used car salesmen. Right? They're just in it to make a buck. Right? They're just in it to line their pockets. They want to fleece the sheep and they're hiding behind the Bible to do so. That's the way some people think of paid pastors. But listen, I, I want to say this to you. And, and I hope that it's borne itself out over five years for those of you who have been here. Listen, I'm here eager to give myself away, not to take from you. I want to give myself to you. It's my goal. I don't want to take from you so that I can have vacations and drive fancy cars and put my kids through college. 
But I want to give as much as I can for as long as I can to the people that God would entrust to my care and to the care of these elders who would serve alongside of me. I want to give you my time in study and teaching. I want to give you my time in counseling and discipling. I want to give you my time in encouraging. I'm not here to take. I'm here to give. And I hope those of you who have walked alongside of us for a while, I hope you would be able to say, it hasn't always done that perfectly, but I think there's been a pattern of that. Finally, you should nominate men who are exemplary. Who are exemplary. Peter says, not those who are domineering. Listen, over the past several years, there has been a wave of pastors who have been disqualified from ministry. Not because of sexual propriety, and not because of the misappropriation of funds, but because they've been bullies. They've been bullies. They bullied the churches they served in submission. They were domineering. One pastor in the UK by the name of Sam Alberry wrote about this in a blog post, and he says, to domineer is to bring something into compliance by force. In the context of pastoral ministry, it happens when the flock assents to things by compulsion rather than by the work of the Spirit in their hearts. It involves the use of intimidation, threats, or bullying. Being domineering is catastrophic for a flock. He says it seems effective in the short term because it gets things done. But it's disastrous in the long term. He says, when Paul says to the Romans about dealing about with those who are weak in faith is instructive here. Those weak in faith, in Romans 14, abstain from certain foods or observe certain days even though God doesn't require them to. But if this has become a conscience issue for them, they shouldn't be coerced into changing their practice. Whoever has doubts, he says, as Paul writes in Romans 14, 23, whoever has doubts, he is, is condemned if he eats because he is eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He says Paul is highlighting a broad principle that applies beyond immediate discussion about food and special days. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. He says if a believer has certain doctrinal views or behaves in certain ways simply because a domineering pastor has coerced them to, then those views or actions are not proceeding from faith. It is not the Spirit of Christ who has brought them about, but the forcefulness of a leader. This is catastrophic because the believer isn't being led by the Lord, but by man. Believing even the right things is no good if it is for the wrong reasons. Now listen, church. There are many who, would, who, who recognize this reality in churches and they say, ha, we don't need no leaders, right? We're just going to go sit on a couch in our living room and we'll all just talk about the Bible. We don't need leaders. We don't need organized religion. But listen, the solution to that is not to say we don't need leadership, but we just need the right kind of leadership in the life of the local church. Listen, Alberry says it well when he says, the flock is to be led, yes, by beauty of example, not force of personality. I can't say it any better. I tried. Didn't work, so I just quoted him. By beauty of example, not by force of personality. In fact, Peter says that these elders or pastors, they don't lord it over the flock. And I think when Peter says that, it's got to draw his mind back to Matthew chapter 20, 
verses 25 to 28, whenever Jesus says about the Gentiles, he says, you know that the Gentiles, how they exercise leadership, they lord it over those under their authority. He says, but not so among you. The greatest among you is to be a what? A servant. A servant. So if you're not to exercise this oversight in a domineering way, right, forceful way, you exercise oversight not by lording authority over them, but by coming under people to serve them. By being an example to them of what real leadership looks like. So you nominate those who are exemplary. You nominate those who are willing. You nominate those who are eager to give themselves away. You nominate those who are personal. personal. You nominate those who are humble. And here's, there's more in the text. And I'm going to give it to you real quick before we close because I think this is, for, for those, of, those of you who are in the room and you're like, why in the world would I want to give myself to this work? Let me tell you why. Because there is an unfading crown of glory that's waiting to be bestowed. Listen to what Peter says about the, what motivates elders to move forward in this work. In verse 4 he says, and when. Those two words right there. And when is the motivation. Because I can tell you from personal experience, right now is not a good motivation. <laughs> because right now, there may be mountains and there may be valleys. Right now, there are sheep that you, that, whose wool is soft. And there are sheep whose teeth are sharp. Right now, there are difficulties and challenges as you try to solve problems and care for people. Right now is not a sufficient enough motive to move you toward this kind of work of ministry, of giving your life away for the local church. The only thing sufficient, the only two words sufficient is and when. And when the chief shepherd appears, we who long for his coming, that he will come and, with an, and he will, we, we, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Right, I want you to know something. That when, when uh, the text we read earlier in John chapter 21, whenever Jesus restores Peter after his betrayals, he doesn't say, Simon Peter, do you love them? Simon Peter, do you love them? Simon Peter, do you love them? He doesn't, ask, he doesn't ask Peter about that. What does he say? Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love the chief shepherd? Do you want to give your life to work in his body? Do you love me? Because listen, if the motive that would drive men toward this kind of service in the life of the local church is love for people, you know what happens? You don't always love people. <laughs> you don't always like people. Some are more lovable and likable than others. But listen, if that's the motive that's driving it, 
then it will fall woefully short. And you will fall into seasons of discouragement and discontent. You know how I know? I've lived it. But if there's a love for the chief shepherd, for Jesus himself, then even when sheep bite, you still, you still, want to, you still move towards him. Why? Because it's not about them, it's about him. It's about caring for his flock. And that you know one day, whenever he returns, that there's going to be a crown that he's going to bestow upon you that is unfading. In other words, it won't tarnish. It's not like the medals that I get for running half marathons. They're going to end up in a landfill one day. <laughs> no matter how prominent of a place I present them in my home, which, by the way, they're in my closet. It won't tarnish. I remember as a child thinking, trophies that I won in baseball, medals that I won on the track, accomplishments in the classroom, those things are going to last. You know how many newspaper clippings I still have that have my name in it from whenever I won cross-country meets in high school? Zero. You know how many trophies I have from baseball leagues that we won? Little plastic gold-colored item? Zero. Why? Because those things fade. They tarnish over time. They lose their significance and their importance. Peter says, if you give your work if you give your life, your energy to this, there is coming a crown that will never be buried in a shoebox under your parents' bed or in their attic that you will pull out and sift through every five years whenever you go home. Because its significance never diminishes and its importance Its importance is insurmountable in this world. So you need to nominate men who are driven by that. Elders are shepherds first before they're anything else. And my hope is that we would see God raise up team of shepherds in this congregation who would be willing to lay aside their pursuit of whatever would catch their attention in the moment to give themselves to this work that Jesus has called them to and this church would affirm them in. That's where we're headed over the next several months as we enter in the nomination and evaluation and installation process. And I hope you will join us in that in prayer. And I want to do that right now. Would you pray with me toward that end? Father, we thank you for the work you're doing here in this church. I know you're doing work in local churches across our community. At First Baptist Fate, at Cross Point, at Cornerstone, Buffalo Creek, at East Ridge, 
at Ridgeview, at places all across churches, all across our community. And Father, I pray here in this particular local church because my heart is knitted here. It's woven here. I pray particularly for this church, God, that You would raise up qualified, spiritually qualified men who are able to lead and feed and protect. Who are able to shepherd by exercising oversight, both at a corporate level for the body and at an individual level for its members. Who are not afraid of being bold on a platform, but are also not afraid of pursuing those who have gone astray. Men who are like Barnabas, who would be encouragers, whose hearts would be filled with compassion and care for this congregation who would want to see it mature into the fullness of the image of Christ. To the glory of God the Father as the Holy Spirit indwells this expression of the temple. Being built. So Father, may we nominate those among us who are humble, who are personal, who are eager who are exemplary and who are willing. Who want to give their lives to a work that will never fade, that will never tarnish, but that will endure through all the ages to come. Father, give us eyes to see, hearts to discern, as we have conversations with those in our midst about their willingness to move forward in this kind of ministry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.